Hello and welcome to another OU Law School podcast. In this episode, I will be talking with Simon Levis, who is a lecturer here at the law school. His research is on Nazi law, but we ended up discussing a lot of things, including the parallels between Nazi Germany and the present rise of populism and the far right across the world. A quick reminder, in July, the law school will be launching its celebration of the 50 years of the Open University. We have some interesting stuff coming your way, so please watch this space. I hope you enjoy this episode and tune in for other podcasts about our research. All right, let's start from the top then. Um, so what got you into, what is your research and what got you into your research? So my research is um, largely about the Third Reich, um, Nazi Germany, and I'm interested in the law in Nazi Germany, both the history of the law and the theory of the law, how we can understand Nazi law as a system of law, how we write about Nazi law, how we understand it, how we interpret it. Um, So that's my broad area of research. Um, I I got into research, generally I'm researching that through a sort of a long winding path. Um, My interest in Nazi Germany stems back from studying Nazi history at school Mm -hmm. and at sixth form college. And then I studied history at university, specialised in Nazi Germany, and I did a master's where I focused on historical discourse, historical writing about um, Nazi Germany and the Holocaust. And then I took a left turn into law and um, uh, did a a conversion, law conversion course and became a practising lawyer for a little bit um, before I sort of decided to leave that and, and, and move into... Uh, academia and so I I did a master's in law and then I did my PhD on on um, legal discourses around Nazi law mm-hmm. um, and that's ended me up where I am today <laughs> <laughs> um, so why why Nazi law for instance why what, what is it what fascinates you with it I think it's um I think it's a very interesting um, example of law it's very much seen as um, I mean, while Nazi Germany has an endless fascination on TV programs and popular books and things, Nazi law is very much seen as a, an outlier, so extreme or, or non-existent as to be not really relevant to mainstream legal kind of discussions, what law is, what you know, how it operates, this kind of thing. But I think that it's, um, I think that it's an, it's an interesting example of law and how law can be is used as part of a process to turn a an ostensibly modern democratic um, legal state into into what the Nazi regime uh, regime became, um, which was uh, um, a state I would say still with law, but also one that was able to carry out the Holocaust and all sorts of other uh, egregious um, acts. Um, so that's one aspect of it. The other in the other is I've always been very interested. I said when writing about the history and about the law in uh, in discourses, how we understand and write about things, what we use, what informs our process of mm-hmm. narrating a past um, and a legal past in this case, and um, and so you know what underpins those kind of uh, assumptions and methodologies we use when writing about something. So, and that kind of attached itself to this interest in uh, in Nazi law. 
So um, let's start a little bit back from the beginning, the, the, the wonderful 50s, 60s. When we had the first debate came out about uh, Nazi law, the, the lovely Fuller Hart debate about positivism and what makes law. Mm. Um, so can you explain more about that to us? Yes, so um, the Hartfuller debate took place in the late 50s. It's very famous within kind of uh, legal theory and jurisprudence as a as a, um, a seminal kind of debate in um, in that in that field of study, and it uh, it, it, it was essentially the start of uh, a, 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 of a longer running uh, debate uh, around what are the conditions for validity of law and whether law and morality are connected necessarily or not. So what is it that we need to make law uh, valid? Um, And, for example, the positivist position espoused by Hart would be that, um, in in sort of brief terms, in outline terms, if law is posited correctly and brought about according to the correct Mm -hmm. procedures and so on, then it is is valid law. Um, Whereas with Fuller, it would be law ultimately needs some kind of um it's not enough for it to be posited correctly it has some kind of intrinsic um characteristics that it needs to manifest in order to be law and that relates to the other point which is this connection between law and morality uh, fuller a natural lawyer would say um law is necessarily connected to morality so those intrinsic character- characteristics it has are moral characteristics right. and law needs to have those in order to still be considered law um, whereas Hart would say, while law and morality can be one and the same, a law can be morally positive, um, that's not a necessary component of it. And uh, 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 it can be just as easy that a law is, is, is immoral or doesn't have certain characteristics of, of morality. And this is where the Nazi law comes in, because mm. Fuller uses this example of, well, according to Hart, Nazi law would still be law. And... Um, Hart tries to sort of move away from that and say no it wouldn't be so can you tell us about a bit about this yeah so the debate is uh, the original debate which was two um, sort of uh, uh, lectures when Hart was visiting uh, Fuller's University in America were two lectures which became two uh, famous articles in the Harvard Law Review and it was ostensibly uh, triggered by uh, a case report of uh, um, a grudge informer case, which is mm-hmm. a uh, um, one of a number of cases in post-war Federal Republic of Germany, where um, the courts had to deal with a situation where someone had informed on, say, a partner, um, a wife or husband in the Third Reich, and you know the the authorities had then prosecuted the the person who was informed, and that that, that informing was malicious, and they really had to try and determine whether the whether it was um, an offence in itself to have informed on someone to have used the system in that way to to um, you know get rid of uh, get rid of someone who uh, by informing on them um, and part of that is whether that law and that system of law that was used by Nazi Germany at the time for that was was valid um, so that consideration was supposedly where it started and that became this uh, uh, you know. They use that to talk about whether Nazi law is valid law or not. But really the debate is not about that. There's very mm-hmm. little about Nazi law in the right. debate itself, and that's the thing that I tend to focus on about it. It's really about you know, the, con- 
the two big questions I've said, the conditions of validity for law and is law and morality right. separable or not? And, um, and, the, and Nazi law is just this kind of example uh, that's used. And Hart, um, Hart said, uh, yeah, well, you know, he, as far as he was concerned, with very little investigation into Nazi law, actually, in the article, mm-hmm. that, um, you know, effectively it was posited correctly so it could be a legal system even though it wasn't moral, whereas Fuller's argument was it was so unjust, you know, it didn't meet his in the morality of law, his eight principles uh, that he considered to be moral, that comprised the law, uh, and so, you know, it it wouldn't be considered law. But, um, and there was some investigation by Fuller into Nazi law, but not a lot. But you're right in the sense that for a long while, Nazi law, for us, was sort of as the the mirror that we look ourselves into, as the opposite of what we Mm. uh, would like to consider as as normal, democratic, uh, liberal law, right? Yeah. Um, But it wasn't studied as law in its own terms, right? Mm. And then something happened in the 90s, right? Which is, uh, among other things, uh, grandchildren went upstairs into the attic and found pictures of grandpa in a Nazi uniform, right? And this this became a sort of a reckoning. So can you tell us uh, about that? Yeah, so so things happened in certain places, in certain fields in in the 90s. So, yes, so as, you know, in in the Hartfield debate, they weren't, really talking about Nazi law in its own terms. It was more about these these paradigms of law. And what I would say is that um, within jurisprudence, analytical jurisprudence, um, which tends to be um, an, sort of an, an unhistorical, ahistorical uh, discourse about legal theory, because it's never really revisited the history, Nazi law has this kind of archetypal wicked legal system kind of situation it's something yeah you look you look in the mirror it's the opposite of what liberal law is it's something we don't want to be but it's very interesting to pull it out in a debate as an example of x y or z um so it's stuck there in 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 that field but um elsewhere there was a whole shift in the early 90s um which i think is related to as you say this kind of cultural recognition rec- um reckoning with the past as the generations moved on um that involved um, really looking at, um, you know, Nazi Germany as, an, as a more ordinary kind of occurrence, uh, something that has, you know, ordinary people were involved in, uh, and, and a number of books came out and, and sort of around the turn of the 1990s that looked into um, the role of ordinary Germans in kind of perpetrating the Holocaust and, and kind of the factors around that, and moved away from this previous model mm-hmm. of a kind of a top-down dictatorship that oppressed the people and and you know and, and ran everything through the kind of uh, the SS the um the spe- the elite uh, Nazi ideological force um and that kind of has has uh, opened up a new kind of wave of scholarship in in in, histo- in history about Nazi Germany but in my view that hasn't really incorporated Nazi law as a right. as a system in terms of uh, in, in what it's looked at so this is where we are. So we're currently, um, um, Nazi law is, is sort of cast within this whole framework of what we are not supposed to be. Mm. But it's never researched in terms of, uh, well, what did it actually entail, what Nazi law entailed, how did it work, how did it operate, right? And this is where I think we're going with, uh, with the research you're talking about. Yeah, so there were, there were, there were, now just in the last very few years, um, I mean, there was a book in the, uh, uh, there, were, there's, there were studies coming out from largely German historians or legal historians, some of which are being published in English, and there was a book 
in the late 90s that was um, Law Under the Swastika, um, and that started to look at uh, some aspects of Nazi law, and that was quite early, uh, I would say. <clears throat> but in the last just handful of years, there have been a couple of um, translated books about uh, a history of criminal law in Germany, within which incorporates this uh, Nazi, the Nazi period, and um, a history of public law in Germany, again, which incorporates mm-hmm. uh, the Nazi period. And so they're looking at broader continuities. Uh, uh, so that, that's got to be starting to emerge. But uh, And I would stress that for years, historians have written about Nazi laws. You know, there was the law... Um, the Nuremberg laws. The Nuremberg laws, yeah, yeah the... the um, Law for protection of people and state. The, you know, there are there are a whole series of laws. So individual laws um, are written about, and historians would say, you know, um, in uh, would refer to them as laws or decrees or you know whatever they were called um, on their own terms, but without really kind of reflecting on 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 the system because historians were, uh, you know, in legal history history was a very kind of subordinated field uh, about Nazi Germany. Generally, you'd be writing about constitutional history of Nazi right. Germany and mention laws, or you'd be talking about the Holocaust and you'd mention you know, discriminatory yeah. laws. But there wouldn't, there wouldn't be much scholarship writing about the Nazi legal system or reflecting on the nature of the Nazi legal system. Um, but we're starting to move towards that um, now, uh, um, and I think that uh, I'm interested in... in, in Writing more about that and bringing that into the kind of the the, the legal academy, the le- legal writing about Nazi law, uh, and trying to sort of marry those two things up: the historical writing and the legal writing. Okay, so one um, one of the interesting things that come up for you um, in this writing. Um, well, one of the main ones is uh, one thing that has come out of historical research in the last 20 years or so is uh, an increased focus on the ideology of the Nazi regime. Mm-hmm. So it would previously perhaps have been considered a few fanatics at the top who um, who would have effectively instrumentalised, undermined and instrumentalised the legal system to get what they wanted. Um, and that's, um, you know, and that's to some extent the... Um, the natural law view, the kind of uh, the the um, the undermining of the legal system, and I would uh, just as an aside uh, mention that something returned to the heart fuller debate and how jurisprudence looks at Nazi law. There's not really any disagreement about what Nazi law actually was, mm-hmm. although I think the impression given is erroneous. Um, both natural lawyers and positivists agree what it looked like; they just disagree about whether that is actually law. Uh, I think it actually looks a bit. Different to what they to what is generally uh, considered to be the case, and that's the main point of interest for me. So, returning to this question of ideology, um, so there's been a move towards embracing, I say, embracing as a historical kind of uh, concept that's useful and analytical concept, the idea of the Volksgemeinschaft, the People's Community, a Nazi kind of ideological um, concept, as a way of um, trying to understand the role that ideology played more broadly in Nazi Germany, not just uh, you know, a couple of fanatics at the top oppressing everyone else, but something that actually kind of was one of the factors that that motivated people's decision making, that, that you know, that, that, that kind of uh, that that played a, a role in the mind of the ordinary German. And um for me the role of 
law or the role of ideology in law seeing law not just as a repressive instrument yes Mm -hmm. it was used to terrorise some people it was used to uh, round up political enemies originally and throw them in concentration camps and so on but also something that was used to that incorporated and um, manifested Nazi ideological principles and had a kind of normative force in society in in furthering those and encouraging people as the law does to behave in certain Mm -hmm. types of ways we, we do seem to forget that how much um, um, in our societies law has its own legitimacy mm. in the sense that we, we think to consider uh, doing something that is according to law as also being good mm. um, and, um, um, and should be followed, regardless of maybe we have some qualms about it. But it's in the law and we should follow it, right? Because that's, soci- that's what society's norms are. Um, and it and then we get into, um, um, as you said, research the Nazis, uh, the Nazi law as law, right? Um, and we seem to uh, immediately have this uh, uh, sort of a, a, a razor's edge in our mind. But no, 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 no. It was the Nazis, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it has to have been something pathological there for for Nazi law to to come together. Uh, it has to have been some very few people over there. But actually, the Nazism was quite um, accepted by a large part of the German population at that time. Uh, and that was reflected in the laws. Yeah, um, and, and you've got to remember that Nazism, while, you know, um, can be argued to be a, a unique or su- sui generis movement in its own right, was part of a broader interwar European shift, or not just European, but to fascism uh, uh, on the right and uh, obviously um, to other to use the term loosely, totalitarian mm-hmm. types of regimes on the left. Um, so um, to consider Nazism as uh, as having, you know, its own distinctive characteristics um, does not mean that we can, you know, separate it entirely off from everything else that, that was happening. So, so there were, you know, there were a number of regimes that shifted towards um, uh, different versions of fascism, and, and 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 you know, there's an equal argument to say that Nazism is a form of is a form of fascism, um, or quite generally accepted, um, albeit slightly distinctive as well. Um, so, yeah, this question of um, law's own legitimacy, and that that's what I'm interested in. It tends to be dismissed to some extent in terms of Nazi Germany because it's almost like the law was such a heavy hand that you had no choice. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a... Um, you know, there were a number of attempts to argue that the kind of formalist legal culture um, that allegedly existed in Germany at the time, um, you know, a combination of uh, deference to authority and, um, you know, following the letter of the law regardless, um, meant that there was no, um, there was, you know, there was no room for manoeuvre. Lawyers in Nazi Germany were schooled in a way that meant that they, you know, even if they predated, they weren't Nazi lawyers in, in an ideological sense, they... They, um, they had no choice but to follow the law because that's how they were schooled. That's how they understood law to work. But that's largely been debunked um, uh, um, from two ends in a way. One, the this, this sort of strength of this formalist culture has been questioned. And two, that you know Nazi laws were inherently non-formal in a sense. They were very open, textured. Mm-hmm. Um, they were very you know used very very political, used very ideological language. They did not um, they did not have a very precise you know they encouraged um, 
you know, application of law by analogy to a to a related case. Um, so there wasn't a very precise formalistic nature to Nazi to most Nazi law, which meant that it would be, you know, there was there was a quite a broad amount of discretion in application, and that discretion had to be filled by something. And we have to understand that this is this is we're talking about discretion. It is not just for the high-ranking, let's say, individuals, both in the judiciary, let's say, or in the administration, Mm. but also to the the low-ranking ones, yeah? Uh, Going all the way almost to the bottom. Yeah, yeah, discretion goes quite far down. And, you know, there were attempts, you know, to... There was the People's Court and the Special Court, you know, there were... There was the replacement of of certain types of officials and certain... um, Certain judges, you know, there was an attempt to fill certain types of court with Nazi-leaning judges and so on. So that, that, those kind of things did happen that meant, um, uh, you know, where it was, the system was influenced from the top down. But at the same time, there was a... Uh, you still had a whole court system um, with a, um, you know, a filled with legal officials and judges that predated the Nazi system right. and that post-dated the Nazi period afterwards as well. You know, denazification was not something that led to... Um, everyone who was involved in Nazi Germany, right? It didn't lead to jobs. five million people automatically getting chased away from the uh, no from the state apparatus. Right? It, it sort of petered out because of the need for the sort of the society to move on, but it also um, and, and also perhaps have some kind of sense of deni- deniability, maybe. But it also um, um, it also um, you know, it was not practical, really, when you think of all the people involved to kind of to completely purge all structures uh, of that. So but we we still have that idea that mm. that post World War Two Germany was denazified, mm. right? Um, so much so that it 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 sort of uh, when two thousand and three happened, uh, the the war in Iraq, the invasion of Iraq. One of the things that the occupying powers, the US, UK, uh, we basically did was to debatify Iraq, mm. which means that all of the people who were part of the administration all of a sudden lost their job, including the engineers who needed to turn on the machines to run the pumps, to run the sewage, to run the, you know, everything. Uh, and it just it's not simply possible to do that, mm. as we found out with our... 2003 whatnot Iraq experience yeah um, I think there are two things about that one is that it's not just as it you know it's not it's equally not possible for um, you know everyone to become a Nazi overnight in 1933 and that's not what happened and that's Mm -hmm. why you've got to look I think at the um, at the kind of systems and structures through which gradually Nazification, Nazification, I can call it that took place at the same time you can't rid people's minds of their experience of their kind of you know their culture. This is sort of the last, or that was a short period of the Nazi rule, uh, relatively speaking, um, twelve years. You know you, you can't just uh, flick a switch. And and the other thing is this: this the, the irony of Nazi Germany is, is is a kind of there has been a sort of because it's it's the Nazis and they're so different from us. There's this kind of question of rupture. We 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 like to imagine um, these kind of very strong points of rupture and 1945 is one of those where the Nazis were there and there was an occupation and you know we got rid of them and um, things moved on and, uh, and look at where Germany is now to, yeah, it's exactly. a model of democracy exactly Ger- yeah uh, um, and what's interesting is not to see um, 
the Nazi period is this aberration where it was kind of some crazy people took over and then we were, they were able to get rid of them and then that, that got rid of them in 12 years and then everything was fine everything was fine it was always the case it was fine it was just this crazy <laughs> what's interesting is that they were able they had they went through that period but nevertheless uh, emerged as a as a uh, over time as a, a strong kind of democracy um um with very different values to to uh, dominant to in in the Nazi period so this so this question of of rupture, you know, it's, it's sort of dominated the discourse, especially around the Holocaust, because it's such a horrifying event. You know, the the the, the um, extermination of six million plus Jews, as well as uh, you know a number of other uh, groups, gypsies, um, homosexuals, homosexuals, all this yeah. kind, you know, in the society. Um, it's hard. To, it's very hard to get our heads around and come to terms with. So you know, naturally, we sort of other it as an experience that we, we you know, that isn't anything to do with our our own experience. But this this rupture, and I think that this rupture point is um, is interesting to highlight from a legal angle. So other scholars um, have written a bit about um, David Fraser and Christiana Vilke about um, the trials that took place, the the Nuremberg trials, which comprised not only the IMT, the International Military Tribunal, the big, well-known um, uh, uh, trial of, uh, of of Nazi leaders, but also the the Nuremberg Military Tribunal. Subsequently, the subsequent tribunals, Control Council Law Number Five. Trial. Yeah, a number of yeah, exactly a number of um, including the Justices Trial, which is yeah, the Justice Trial, or, or effectively a trial of the le- of the legal system, the legal officials. There was the trial of business leaders. There, you know, a number of areas of the state and society that were considered to be instrumental in Nazi Germany, and they've written about the whole way that was structured. Um, especially with the justice trial, was to paint it as a criminal state, a barbar, mm-hmm. a barbarous criminal kind of um, state that was that had to be um, re-civilized by the return of law, this international law, this kind of positive um, international influence by the Allies that was able to um, return Germany and, and the world to civilization. Um, so that requires a, a very strong opposition between the law that's saving us right. and the law that was the law inverted commas uh, the, that was used to carry out these things. And so that kind of um, that's one example of this kind of rupture man- manifesting itself in legal in legal practice, um, which I think has been very influential on the uh, discipline ever since, uh, or the writing of Nazi law. And even though you know. The Nuremberg trials were very important. They had their own very important reasons for taking place and 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 and, and uh, um, significant positive consequences. There were also many other implications of the of the trials um, which need readdressing, and um, and I think that, that that's one of them. Um, and to move now to move ourselves a bit forward to to present day in the present day's condition, which is that. Um, uh, I wouldn't say mirroring 1933, but we are in a sort of a wave of populism, a wave of of, of the rise of um, elites to try to use popular resentment to sort of foster an illiberal, so not a non-liberal, but an illiberal, mm. um, um, uh, both law and both state and and, and rights. Um, so the, the term illiberal democracy is what is currently in vogue. Um, and when I 
uh, when I talk to you, I can't seem to, to move away from my mind that this study has actually a lot of things that uh, that is interesting for the current study of the loss of democracy, because we're currently in a sort of a, a, a wave of Eastern Europe that is going through this populist movement, that you almost have a belt of illiberal democracy starting from Poland, um, uh, Slovakia, Hungary, uh, uh, Serbia, that you can go almost all the way to Greece um, and not cross a border that doesn't have a, currently a government that believes in a liberal democracy. Yes, so sort of a, a, a wave of popular nationalism, author, authoritarian but democratic popular nationalism, um, uh, 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 in particular. In I think we're even moving away from nationalism because there's there is something there is national, nationalism can be put in a positive mm. light. Um, this is even more than that. It's it's um, uh, not putting ourselves in nationalism and love for country, but fear of others. And yeah, that, that is not sort of nationalism. No, well, in a way, I mean nationalism in that in that in that sense of the term, the the kind of um, uh, the the juxtaposition of your own nation to others, and the kind of um, right. the kind of tension that exists between those. I mean, nationalism in that in that sense. Um, and, and for a long time, you know, writing about Nazi Germany was a, a it's a fascinating thing, but it and, and it's part of our pretty recent uh, past in Europe. But it was sort of it's not sort of you know not sort of considered to be relevant in the sense of something that raises concerns that should exercise us today but now and, and then the whole question about how you know how close we are to sort of a 1933 um moment uh, if i can call it that is 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 an interesting and live one um now we we you know it's sort of there's all this talk about you know if I bring Americans into it to what extent is Trump for the new Hitler and all this kind of all this kind of thing and and that can be taken too far but I think um, it's important that's another consequence of not painting Nazi Germany as this aberration um, you know it's something that's part of the continuity of our history and our law and it could happen again not in exactly the same form right but in a different kind of form that is you know that that, that is relevant to the climate um you know 60 70 years on um and so it's recognizing when that history is kind of uh, is relevant and uh, might help us to understand what's happening and and um what might happen and what might help prevent bad things happening um one thing in particular that's interesting, I think, about that is the question of sort of the ability of constitutions uh, to resist um, to resist kind of the the uprising of a movement that might try to change them. I won't say undermine because I think that's you know, I, well, uh, sort of for various reasons I mentioned earlier. Not, I don't think Nazi Germany is about undermining law, but definitely undermining the pre-existing constitution and and changing it and reforming it in a, in a different way. Right, because we do have to for, uh, we do have to remember that um, even ni- the way that 1933 happened was within the Weimar Constitution, right? And there's, uh, and since this is a more closer to my field, is that we do believe that there, or we used to think that uh, if we just build institutions, right, if we just have separation of powers, if we have a democratic elected parliament, a government and court and fairly independent court system, 
that we would never go in the uh, in the way of of Nazi Germany or fascist Italy, right? But that seems to be changing currently um, with the U.S. elections, with the wave of populism in Eastern Europe, that um, it institutions don't seem to be enough, right? Something intangible like values, democratic values, having the sense that uh, this is somewhere where we can't go, or this is a can of worms that was closed for a good reason mm. right, and shouldn't be open, um, uh, that those notions need to be uh, in place to also preserve a, a liberal democ- democratic model. Yeah, um, and I think we, we're very um, attracted to the idea that if you build the right institutions and structures, then everything else will follow. But we see, and, you know, there's uh, there are rule of law projects around introducing the rule of law to um, uh, to countries that are failed states or states with um, states with uh, constitutions that aren't really compliant with whatever version of the rule of law we're talking about. I won't get into that, but um, you know, in, in South Africa, introduced a, a a very very strong constitution in order to sort of come to terms with and move beyond its own past, uh, its own apartheid past. Um, and these things can certainly help, but but you still have Jacob Zuma, who yeah, well yeah, exactly. And the and, and the temptation is to think that this is the answer. And I agree with you that it's not. And I think Nazi Germany is interesting. So it's, it's always been recognised, and um, and uh, Nazi Germany was considered to some extent, uh, uh, using inverted commas again, a legal revolution because the idea was that the Weimar Constitution, which was at the time a model democratic constitution um, had an emergency um, an emergencies provision, article 48 which enabled certain aspects of the constitution to be suspended in the event of um, you know, certain types of emergencies taking place and that those, you know the South African constitution has one, you know in common law countries we have uh, legislation around that but it's the Most same constitutions kind of have those emergency provision powers in yeah, place. Yeah, they do, they very much do it's a very very Accepted, long-standing uh, component of a of a constitution, um, and um, and in Weimar Germany, you know the uh, the Nazi Party was able to when it had a lever on power through the uh, uh, through elections, it was then able to manipulate that um, the emergency provision to gain more and more power. Um, now, arguably, you know that that resulted in the Enabling Act, which gave the government effectively. Um, the ability to decree any law that it wished, um, totally bypassing the existing procedures, and really, those things were not um, were not uh, uh, envisioned in the constitution. So it wasn't really a, a properly legal revolution mm-hmm. in that sense. And I think that that's um, you know, so that that tells us to some extent that building a better constitution, building a better emergency provision with more checks and balances, is not necessarily going to solve the problem when. What 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 it, what it is is, is is a cultural shift, a shift in values, or something like that. That means that you know that that will lead the way, and the law will follow if people are willing. You know, ultimately, ultimately, really, the people um, are the strength of where the sovereignty lies in a constitution. Because um, you know, if the people are willing to allow something to happen uh, or to support something, um, then it becomes quite difficult to to use a technical legal provision to uh, to counteract it and that can go so far you know so far um, despite all kind of Trump's authoritarian rhetoric hard to know how much he believes in that authoritarianism <laughs> but also 
and you know a fairly kind of compliant um, Congress that wants to get its own stuff done, um, the institutions are you know are pushing against him, preventing him well, from doing we, certain things. We shouldn't forget that when it comes to Trump, Trump lost the popular vote, mm. right? So it's not like that. There's an overwhelming wave of support in the U.S. Mm. to dismantle um, the institutions that were that were built, but. It turned out that, um, and by the way, the institutions in the U.S. are sort of fighting back. We just currently see that um, Trump still has a problem with enacting his ban, uh, travel ban, mm. because of the courts. And they say this is not within the Constitution. But it turns out that because um, institutions, so the president has a lot of power, um, that uh, the inbuilt checks and balances that happen within the U.S. Congress um, are not used willingly by the majority party, which is the Republican mm. Party. And that has a big significant impact because the way that the system was designed was that the check on the president was to Congress, right? Or in most, because of the separation of powers in most constitutional democracies, the check on one power getting authority where all the others, right? Yeah. What happens if the others just don't? Because of their political agenda, they choose party over state or party over country, right? Or party over constitution, yeah. yeah. Well, that, that, and I think the thing is, in America, that's, it's, it's very significant that Trump has reasonably low levels of popular approval, popular support. Uh, you know, more people voted for Hillary Clinton than voted for Trump. There are plenty of people willing to push the case against Trump's um, uh, attempt to move away from certain kind of arguably constitutional values that the US has embodied. Um, and but that, and I think that's important. So the, the success of the institutions in opposing Trump, as, as you kind of uh, allude to, is the, is the people, you know, a, a legal provision needs someone to action and yeah. enforce it. Um, and, and, and the courts... People, because people will bring cases before the courts, um, then those will be litigated and the courts can be an effective balance against the president. Congress, at least, uh, you know, um, both houses are in Republican hands, um, but they have significant Democratic minorities in them. There are plenty of people, um, and some Republicans too, who speak out against certain directions in which Trump says he would like to head uh, in relation to certain things. So, but if you if you're in a situation where um, you have a combination of much more support for a kind of populist movement in that direction, and perhaps um, a, a set of checks and balances that aren't quite as robust, um, but even if they are robust, as I say, they need people to to enforce them, to apply them, to action them, um, then. Um, then things could move a lot more quickly in in a direction you know uh, away from away from the the existing constitution and no matter how strong the constitution is, if people aren't willing to um, stand up for it stand up for it then then it, it doesn't mean anything and constitutions can be changed there's there, all constitutions have provisions for amending them yeah it's not set in stone regardless of how much we want to um, all right so. Let's move away from um, from all this because this is something we can talk about for ages. Mm. Uh, I have a feeling. So let's let's slowly wrap this up and and ask. Um, so how do you how do you manage your research process? Um, I think it's. I mean, the, the, 
I tend to um, I tend to write. Um, it tends to be a sort of collaborative process. I have certain mm-hmm. people who work, who I, who I, who I've, um, who I've come to know, who work in related areas, and there are some in my case who are um, on the sort of history of law in fascist states, Nazi states, authoritarian states, and there are some on the kind of legal theory. Because I'm kind of, with my area of interest, I'm kind of between different kind of right. fields, uh, between history and law, between theory and history. Um, you know. Um, and um, uh, so, there are, so you know, through kind of uh, engagement with them, um, look, looking at other work, going to conferences, I kind of uh, take my own research forward, and then might plan, um, you know, for example, a period of, I'm going to say primary research, <laughs> but that can mean a number of different things. But say library-based research to kind of so I'm looking at discourses, for example, to to look into things. But but gem- and generally papers or articles will emerge over time from writing a conference paper, presenting it a couple of times, and so on. In short, reading leads to more reading. Yeah, and <laughs> and, uh, and to writing. Although um, although you know I'm not always great at the getting down to writing. So, mm-hmm. You know, some, um, maybe not the only one who struggles with that. So that's um, that's something. I mean, at the moment, I have I still have. I mean, I finished my PhD in 2015, but I still have a whole load of research from that and that is kind of taken on in related to that that I'm um, that I'm trying to write up and, 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 and publish so I have a um, you know short sabbatical early next year to mm-hmm. try and write a book which hopefully will um, hopefully will kind of clear a lot of that away and then I can <laughs> go and do some what I want to do some archival research into uh, Nazi law okay um, so now we know what's what lies in the future um, um, so what suggestions would you give to researchers who are just starting out um, in terms of you know how to get things done hmm. um to start with you've got to be really interested in what you're what you're writing about you know it's it's um it's it's a lot it's quite a lot of laborious work writing and rewriting uh, researching first but writing and rewriting and then submitting and then being rejected and then resubmitting mm-hmm. and rewriting <laughs> you know it's um it's uh, uh it's a long process and you know i um what i discovered on my phd is that basically kind of i think there's so many things to say about nazi law in my view that i could you know it could be a 10 20 30 year kind of research it's project a lifetime project that's it, fine <laughs> yeah so but you have to be so therefore you have to be really interested in it you have to be willing to um to commit yourself uh to commit yourself to it passionately if i can use that that term um uh in terms of actually getting things done i think um i mean i used to be uh, a younger naive more naive um sort of postgraduate student <laughs> of the kind of you know go and do a load of research and then stop and then do a lot of writing whereas actually i think it's a much more iterative process right. so i think ideas really lead your research so um a combination of doing thinking of talking to people be collaborative you know think of ideas do some research write things down test things out and then sort of move along in that kind of um in that kind of iterative way i think is um there's a there's a some put it as a spiral or a zigzag mm. when you when you try to visualize this process but yeah that's uh, that's basically it um there's another thing what you mentioned there which is the writing up the sending the getting the review the getting the rejections and mm. um and we need to, to understand that, that that's how the scientific process works. It's part and parcel of the scientific process. And that criticism and talking and even 
admitting that sometimes you've made a wrong intuitive conclusion um, is okay. Mm. It happens. It's that's the that's the nature of, as I said, of the scientific process, the nature of the process, um, and it's something that you shouldn't take personally. Right? That's one of the things that um, are important to to remember. Yeah, uh, is what I found. It's, it's getting a bad review is not the end of everything. Well, if you look at uh, <laughs> um, an article I've um, I've just had accepted subject to some minor revisions, which I need to carry out. So, but. Uh, you know, I, 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 this is the fourth place I've submitted mm-hmm. it, um, and partly is because it's because of the nature of it. Um, it looks at legal discourse and Nazi law. It's a, a, you know, it's a, a niche of, field. It's a niche field, and it's between kind of. So um, you know, the first journal I submitted it to said, "Well, it's not sort of you know this kind of discursive angle is not kind of." Um, um, you know, we'd like to know more about Nazi law, but not not this, this bit. Aspect, yeah. <laughs> um, so come back to us with another paper. Um, and so, and then the second one, which I thought was more in the area, kind of said yes, but you know, actually, you know, we are, you know, we're slightly more interested. In, we think it's a good article, but we're slightly more interested in next and why. So the first two were basically sort of. Um, Oh, uh, um, you're knocking on the wrong door. Yeah, you're knocking on the wrong door. Even though I've given so much thought to the door, <laughs> I should knock on. And then the third one said, "Okay, we, you know, we think that you've overstated something here, and you've kind of said, done something here. We don't quite um, agree with uh, um, in terms of your argument. Not agree with it, but sort of, you know, you've they just sort of had a couple of comments um, and said they weren't willing to publish it." Um, um, and so I then did some revisions to it mm-hmm. based on that and sent it to the fourth place, um, which I think is actually very much interested in legal discourse. Uh, so it's in the right area and I've made some changes to it and they've, and they've said, um, yes, we'd like to publish it, please hear some reviewer comments, uh, which still are saying sort of, oh, it's, it's, you know, we like it, but you, know, you could consider this, you could add that, you know, so there's still things I need to do to it, but, um, but then that, that will hopefully appear soon enough uh, and that's been you know that's process has taken more than a year um so yeah uh, but but you get there in the end and and, and you, it can be hard you know to get a rejection of course um uh, uh, and you might need to sort of take a moment to regroup <laughs> right but but then you look at it in the cold light of day and say what do i need to change do i need is it is it is it the wrong journal is it the wrong article you know is it is it just some things i need to tweak do i need to think about structure this kind of thing and then and then try again. So um, and I've got you know a book proposal with a couple of other uh, people we're editing, looking to edit, which um, has come back, and we need to make revisions and resubmit that. We've been asked to resubmit it, but it needs some revisions. You know, this is um, I've got a book chapter that I think that I will. I think it, it, you know, there's kind of indications that will be accepted, but again, there will be some revisions proposed. So this is just part of the it's process. Part of the process. <laughs> Once in a while, you get you get a response. Accepted with minor yeah. changes, uh, and then you open the file and you see that the copy editor has made not such minor changes. Yeah, minor is a relative <laughs> term. And it's, uh, um, yeah. I just got one yesterday, and I saw that um, all of my in-text quotations have been moved to block quotations. All right, even including my words in the quotation, and it just made a whole mess. Mm. That was fine. It's part of the process. You get to fix it and move on. I think one thing to bear in mind from that is is when you're in a position of full time researching, mm-hmm. don't I, I perhaps say you know left it too long to submit stuff, um, just in terms of my own 
kind of getting things out there and also trying to make it too perfect and also uh, perfect doesn't exist in this kind of yes and also um you know one thing at a time i mean you can write one thing at a time but that is also you know as it can take a year it can take time to get things accepted so it, it doesn't work in my experience, to send something off and sit back and think, Indeed. right, great, that's going to be out there. <laughs> you know, get on with something else, else. get yeah. that sent out. You know, I've got five, four or five things, you know, <laughs> in different stages at the moment, and that's, you know, and I, I think that's, um, I think you, you have to, and that's over a long period, but but you um, you have to get on with other stuff because otherwise you'll sit there twiddling your thumbs yes. and you don't know what response you'll get back. Record podcasts. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Well, thank you very much for this talk, and see you around. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I recorded this episode a while back, so some of the information is dated. To keep up, please go to the OU Law School's website. Don't forget to tune in in July when we start our celebration of the OU's 50th birthday. The music in the background is called Dirty Mac by Endless Love. Have a wonderful day and hope to see you again.